0: Hello and welcome to the Political Party Daily. This episode features Anita Boateng, who's been a special advisor at so many different government departments for the Conservatives. The MOJ, the DWP, the Wales Office, CCHQ, the Cabinet Office, and as well as that, uh, had a very successful career in broadcasting, uh, working on Question Time and other TV shows. So has just already has an incredible amount of experience in politics and broadcasting. She shares her expertise with us about this campaign, about different politicians and the different advice you should give. But I began by asking her what her assessment was of the Conservative campaign so far.
1: I think it's going well. I really do think it's going well. When you look at what's changed from 2015, 2017 to now, I certainly feel like in 2017, it was very much that the electorate had quite a shallow view of both Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May. And so there was so much opportunity for voters to really change your mind. Mm. And that's where you saw so much of that churn. But I think looking to 2019, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson are very much established figures in British politics. Yes. People do know what they think about them. And so I think that... Because the Conservatives are already ahead, the key thing in this campaign is don't mess things up. Yes, you don't have to do a lot; you just have to not confirm any fears. Yes, and I think that's what they're doing.
0: And some of the polling, it looks like there's been a, a, a slight squeeze. I mean, is it, is that giving you the jitters? Uh, no, I think that's expected. If the Liberal Democrats,
1: as they always do in every election campaign, if they get squeezed, then what happens is that Labour benefits. That's just what's happens. And I think that Westminster actually exaggerates the importance of the Liberal Democrats. I remember when I worked on Question Time in 20, 2015. We had the three leaders debates. You had David Cameron, you had Ed Miliband, and then you had Nick Clegg. And the audience, as it's question time, submits questions. And we were really struck when it came to Nick Clegg. The audience had no questions for him. They had tuition fees. We hate you. Yes. They had, who are you going to form a coalition with? I think in the end we chucked in a question about the EU Because there wasn't that thing where, when it came to Ed Miliband, they were just incisive, they were aggressive, and they really knew what the weaknesses of that party was. When it came to the Liberal Democrats voters didn't seem to think about them that much. And that's why I think when you come to an election, they do inevitably get squeezed, and that benefits Labour.
0: But with Brexit, obviously, that's changed things, perhaps for the Lib Dems, in the sense that people are talking about their position on Brexit, people are interested in it in the sense that a lot of people are annoyed by it. Yeah. But going hard Remain and revoking Article 50 as a policy position, perhaps is a bit more interesting than previous Lib Dem policies.
1: It's interesting, but it's not popular. Like, and I understand why they got to where they got to, which was they got to run up to the conference and they thought, oh, gosh, if Labour becomes, you know, a fully-fledged second referendum party, then we're in trouble, yeah. right? Uh, and so what can we do to show that we're the real party of Remain? Let's go for revoke. And when there's no deal on the table and everything's in chaos, that kind of works for you. When you have got a deal and the end to some people is in sight... Then to say revoke feels unfair and British people have a real sense of what's fair play.
0: So if you were advising the Lib Dems, what would, you have, what would you have advised them to do?
1: Well, I mean, the two things that everyone's talked about, which is you didn't need to say revoke because people, you have to do too much to explain to people that that's mm. if you become the prime minister and it all becomes a bit hypothetical you just needed we're for a second referendum we're for a people's vote and not to build it all around joe swinson but to make use of some of those labor defectors like Chikaramuna, like luciana berger and say this is a team that really is going to make an impact in parliament
0: um so your your one of your previous um bosses jeremy hunt stood against boris johnson for the conservative leadership a real sliding doors moment ready and there was a real contrast of styles yeah um what was he like to work for, Jeremy? Oh,
1: Jeremy was lovely. Jer- I didn't know him very well when I joined um, the campaign and decided to, to sort of get involved. It was because his team were just fantastic people. Um, I'd seen them, I'd seen them work, and I was really interested to see how they they worked in a campaign. So I did a lot of the broadcast stuff, which was great fun, but... Because we pitched him as, you know, he's a statesman-like figure. He can, you know, negotiate in Brussels. He can get the withdrawal agreement reopened. When you're doing broadcast, that means everything has to be perfect. He has to look statesman-like at all times. And I was talking to a friend about the 2015 election. And I said, what was the defining moment for you? Because I was a journalist, so we remember Ed Stone. I mean, but that's not something voters, I'm not sure, are really thinking about today. And he said, oh, the bacon sandwich moment. And I was like, that wasn't in the 2015 campaign, but it was so defining that people really just associated Ed Miliband with that kind of awkward eating, what's going on. And so for me, for the hard campaign, it was like, he had this tendency to, to eat. And, and there were cameras and there were people taking photos and it was so stressful to me. So I remember one time we went up to Aberdeen, we went to Scotland and we had this this big stunt that was, you know, it wasn't a stunt, it was meeting some fishermen, then you get on a boat, yeah. and you know, we're going to have fish and chips, and they brought fish and chips and they brought iron brew, which I thought was a bit on the nose, but <laughs> um, and so, so we give him this box, and they're all chatting, and suddenly he says, I'm starving opens the box, and actually starts like walling down this food, and all the snappers go crazy, and I thought, oh god there's going to be a photo, there's going to be an awful photo, and in the end there wasn't but it was a constant thing where he pulled a pint, and then he'd start drinking it he had a milkshake and he'd be like, oh, let's try this because he's very game for things. But you're yeah. always worried that there's going to be that one thing that goes a bit wrong and ends up being the kind of image of the campaign. Because, you know, photos are really what define a campaign.
0: Yeah. And with food, no one looks good eating food. No one.
1: I mean, unless you're Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven, like <laughs> you cannot make it work. And actually, Jeremy looks good doing lots of things that normal people don't look good doing, like running. So we had him. Like, yes. He was captured and he's he just perfectly normal compared to really Gove, Osborne and, and it's not all kind of dishevelled and no. he, he actually runs a lot so obviously in, in, like quite fit and able to do it without looking like he's about to pass out um, so that was quite good but it's always difficult and we had um, oh god we did this sports day and so we were like oh let's get him involved do a bit of sport so he had a cricket bat And it was this kid that had to sort of bowl it to him because it was with, you know, young kids. And I remember saying to the kid before the war evolved, underarm, please. (laughs) And this kid kind of solemnly nods. And I was like, slow it. And it was fine in the end. Um, And so he, you know, bowled it and Jeremy hit it and the snappers caught it and the broadcasters were there. He did one. And then one of the snappers went, oh, no, it was a broadcaster. It was BBC. And he said, oh, should we do another one? And I thought, you guys really, oh, no. you're really testing me here. And so the kid did it again. Jeremy hit it. Oh, thank God. right? Yeah. Should we do another one? And I thought, you know what? For my nerves, can we stop here? <laughs> I didn't say that. So I think we have to go. Um, but there's always that instant where you think... No one's going to remember every time it goes right. Everyone's going to remember the one time Absolutely. that it goes wrong. Yeah. Spontaneity.
0: And, <laughs> and during that campaign, did you at any point think you could win?
1: I think you all I think if you do politics, I mean I'm a councillor um, up in Redbridge and you cannot fight any election without thinking I'm going to win. Because otherwise, you know, why are you there? And if you're you're not thinking I'm going to win, you're thinking I'm going to defy expectations or every little thing I do one more door knock, one more conversation, one more leaflet could make the difference between winning and losing. And so that thing, I mean, fighting campaigns is all about that belief, all about that optimism. And I think politicians weirdly are naturally very optimistic because how else can you go through a situation where you could be sacked every five years without thinking ultimately you're going to have a long and successful career and if you you know you lose you kind of you're going to bounce back that's just the way you have to fight an election
0: i wonder how different this campaign would be with jeremy hunt as the leader of the conservatives
1: oh gosh i don't know i really haven't thought about it that much i think he had different policy priorities, definitely. I mean, he talked about education, he talked about business. I think you'd be seeing a different perspective. I kind of think, having worked at CCHQ, and I used to work for the party chairman, that the machine of CCHQ is so good and that we do tend to keep our manifestos quite simple and straightforward. So I think it would feel different. But I, I think on the substance, you'd probably be where you are right now. Well, I hope so, anyway.
0: But you're more of a Jeremy Hunt person than a Boris Johnson person.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know what, quite what that means. I, I'm no. a Conservative. Yeah. Um, and so I am loyal to the Prime Minister of the day. Um, but I certainly, I think Jeremy's a lovely person and got a, a real um, sense of leadership and is a real statesman and is a really good politician. Um, and I've been really fortunate to have worked with some of the nicest men in politics, um, whether that's Jeremy or it's David Livington or Brandon Lewis, are all oh, incredibly lovely. And so, yeah, it's been. A, I've loved being a special advisor and I've learned a lot from from people like that who are great politicians but also have a lot of time for you know, their staff. Yeah.
0: I just wonder in terms of the tone of the campaign, people worry about the, the CCHQ changing its Twitter handle to Fact Check UK and things yeah. like that. I can't imagine Jeremy Hunt running a campaign like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing about digital is that it's not like broadcast, in that broadcast, you have a built-in audience. You have millions of people that are going to watch you, regardless of whether you're dull or entertaining, because it's on the TV, right? Whereas with digital, you really need to punch through. And so even when I was at CCHQ, there was much more of a sense of, we need to take more risks with digital. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you, you do crazy things but it means that you give people that are doing digital a little more leeway um, to, to to take chances and see what cuts through so I think some of what they've done has worked so I don't know if you remember the Comic Sans um, yes. little picture where they had the basic kind of get Brexit done message but did it in an awful font which had people sharing and chatting about it which is lovely and I think works and then I think the the Twitter handle thing I doubt they'll do that again Um, I'd be surprised if they saw that as a success. But I would say that... If you're on Twitter, which is a very specific audience, and tweeting about politics, which is an even smaller specific audience, and you're following CCHQ press office, chances are you're an activist or a journalist. In which case, are you going to see that and think, oh, look at this interesting little, you know, adjunct to full fact. Let me see what they're saying about Jeremy Corbyn and the
0: NHS. I guess it's more that people worry about the tone in which you're being governed or Mm. the moral standards of of government and how it can sort of maybe degrade high office, you know, people are very bruised after the referendum that um, people feel that lies were deliberately told and and amplified to keep people uh, talking about things in a particular way. It's more I guess that it feels there are these new types of campaigns now that are deliberately provocative Um, and whether that is something that a a grand party like the Conservatives should be getting involved in.
1: Yeah, I think It's been interesting during this campaign that it feels as though a lot of parties are taking a lot more risks and they're doing things which some would say you wouldn't normally see in a campaign. So the Liberal Democrats had, they've had these leaflets that look completely like newsletters, which, you know, you could argue is a little misleading. Uh, You've had a lot of Labour groups that have been going around on social media and spending a lot of money on these digital campaigns. And I kind of think that, Part of what we're seeing is journalists thinking that unlike 17 and 15, where they didn't pay enough attention to what was happening online, Mm. that them feeling like they should report on it more, which is great. And I'm not... And I think that has obviously meant that more people are paying more attention to some of these things that are going on. I'm not sure that fundamentally the character of politics has changed since the beginning of time and that people still exaggerate, people still go for little stunts to grab attention. I think they've just changed.
0: Uh, there was a perception, certainly maybe in the last two or three years, that Labour were kind of oddly ahead on digital, and maybe that has levelled out now. Are there any things that Labour or left-wing groups like Momentum do that you think, oh, actually, that's quite good?
1: Yeah, their organic sharing is amazing. Yeah, Ultimately, you can get hundreds, you can get thousands, you can get millions to see your videos if you have ordinary people tweeting and saying, oh, look at this or on Facebook, reposting something with a positive, you know, topper about Jeremy Corbyn. So it's very hard to replicate that. You don't have trade unions, you don't have people that are unashamedly pro us sitting on social media all day and saying very nice things. And so that is going to be the envy of anyone in any country.
0: (laughs) And do you think the Tories have figured out how to campaign against Corbyn?
1: I don't know that you have to. I think in 2017, there were a lot of Labour voters who were unsure about Jeremy Corbyn, that when push came to shove, whether that's because of the campaign that the Conservatives fought, or whether it's because of the social care policy, or whether it's because they saw something about fox hunting, or for whatever reason, thought, mm, not sure you pass the smell test, let me go back to Labour. Mm. And I think that's just not happened this time. This time that Brexit is that proxy for I don't feel as though culturally we're in the same place, Jeremy Corbyn, you and I. You feel very London, I'm not very London. And so the doubts are partly, yeah, you don't really believe in Brexit, but also I'm not sure about you. And so that's the campaign. If you want to get Brexit done, great. If you're not sure about Jeremy Corbyn,
0: vote Conservative. But there are attacks on, on Jeremy Corbyn that would have sunk other leaders. Uh, when you think of, you know, the ammunition that the Conservatives unloaded on Corbyn last time, and it just seemed to sort of glance off all the IRA stuff, Hamas and Hezbollah. It felt like it wasn't really cutting through the public. I mean, am, am, am I wrong? Do the public care about that stuff, and it's not reflecting the polling, or was maybe the tone of the Tory attack ineffective?
1: I think there are things that people associate with Labour leaders, right? You're nice, you've got a sense of fairness. Things they don't associate, like competence and leadership. And so it didn't matter. The substance was never really the issue. And making it all about the substance is too complicated. It involves you knowing about foreign policy issues. It doesn't say... It's not convincing, because... Is he really not that nice a man when we think Labour leaders are generally quite nice men? But what does work and the reason why I think anti-Semitism has really caught the public's attention in a way it hasn't before is it says you can't root this thing out from your party. So how are you going to run the country? So it's much more an issue of competence rather than intent. And so a campaign that's much more about that than about specific policy issues that happen in countries that you don't really spend a lot of time thinking about makes a big difference.
0: Uh, You mentioned anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It seems the Tories have issues with Islamophobia as well. I mean, is that something you've ever seen or heard yourself?
1: Well, I mean, when I worked at CCHQ, you obviously have instances where people get picked up for this behaviour and that behaviour, and I will be the last person to defend anyone for saying anything racist or sexist. Uh, I, ju- I do think there's a difference because, I mean, I remember at the time, you know, Theresa May and Brandon Lewis were not embroiled in mural scandals or the equivalent. It it felt quite different. And I am glad that, you know, we got to mention Boris Johnson in this, given the Burr row that he apologised for that. Because ultimately, I think he probably does regret saying it or writing it and that it became a symbol for a lot of the concerns that people have or concerns people may have about the party. The thing that really worries me when it comes to Islamophobia is the the wider societal default position. So I remember Hope Not Hate did a whole thing into the Tory party and, you know, the party, 50% think that that Muslims are a threat, Islam is a threat to the way of life. And then they also did one into the country at large and it was 50% roughly. And it was like, well, this is a wider issue that we really should be talking about and some myths that really need to be busted. And I, I mean, I slightly feel as though we're kind of missing the issue if we just want to talk about the, the the Conservative Party. And is there a wider issue in the public that means quite a lot of people have views that you could conceive as being certainly naive or ignorant at, at best?
0: There are so many things similar. I remember William Hague saying, you never get to fight the same campaign twice. <laughs> And yet, in a weird way, there were so many parallels with the last election. Uh, a big Tory lead, uh, a snap general election, uh, a, a squeeze of the polls. Jeremy Corbyn, maybe not as impressive as last time, but still, could, could still maybe it feels like he could turn things around. Um, and a terror attack. And I just wonder, with the terror attack on London Bridge the other day, how hard is it, do you think, for, for politicians to react to that in the correct way in an election campaign?
1: Impossible impossible there's there's no way to react that that really allows you to show compassion to do the things that you would normally do outside of a campaign whilst also not just leaving the campaign aside and saying cancel the general election and i do think that there is a fear And there was a fear that we would do the same thing as 2017, where it felt as though we were very focused on this kind of security or the immediate kind of cobra important issues Mm. and not in the politics of it. I think this time is different because the police cuts issue has been neutralized to some extent because there has been a pledge that's been running since July about increasing police officers. And voters understand less about probation and about the wider prison system than they do about police numbers, which feels very instinctive and feels very true. And the doubts about Jeremy Corbyn, because last time we were told he was terrible and he seemed quite sweet it felt as though there was a level of distrust there. This time, because with the benefit of how much exposure he's had as Labour leader, there is a little more willingness to see him as, hmm, do we completely trust you Um, about security issues? And trust is a big theme through this campaign, whether it's spending pledges that people think, hmm, so you're really going to give me absolutely everything? And the more I think Labour continue to say well train fares or waspy women the more people go where's that money coming from it becomes more of a credibility issue and less of a oh great election giveaway i'd quite like that
0: Uh, if you're advising the prime minister at the moment in reacting to this the security situation what advice would you give about how to handle it i know that's a very difficult question
1: (laughs) it's a very difficult question I can't fault the party for being on the front foot with this because either you're punching or getting punched. And I think I have a great deal of sympathy with them because of that. It's a very specific situation where there's quite a lot of... And I used to be the special advisor at the Ministry of Justice, so I won't get drawn into some of the complexities of the way that the law has changed. And so it's difficult for you to mount a very nuanced argument in the middle of a campaign about Mm. what exactly has gone wrong the most important thing is from a security point of view that the party actually does go back and review the cases of people that are in similar situations, and that there is a bit of trust restored from the public's perspective about keeping the country safe. I think that I actually think the discussion might move on fairly soon. You've got the NATO uh, summit happening, and that is a defence issue, but it's it's slightly tangential. And then I think you might get back into the flow of the campaign. So.
0: I wonder with politicians, and, and you know, you've you've advised many of them, and been a special advisor to so many, um, about showing emotion and and showing their personality. Obviously, it depends on the individual politician, but do you think it's good for politicians to to emote? Yeah, of course.
1: I think, you know what? Politicians are much more... You have things like the Prescott moment, where things that happen that go horribly wrong, yeah. where politics changes and the media's relationship with politicians change, and special advisors especially become more risk-averse than you would be in an ordinary situation because spontaneity things can go great but they can go horribly wrong and no one ever remembers the things going great so if you said to someone what was the defining moment of 2010 they'd say julian duffy right or 20 2017 they'd say nothing has changed right these are not positive moments The, the moments that stick out are the ones where things have gone awry and so as advisers, you constantly spend your time. It's much more nerve-wracking than actually being the politician, sitting there and hoping that nothing goes wrong. And so I remember the 2018 Conservative Party conference, and I was watching it with a number of uh, senior number 10 advisors, <laughs> And we sat there and Dancing Queen played, and this was the year after the P45 yeah. uh, situation. So thank God I was not there. Well, I wasn't in the room for that one. Yeah. And so Dancing Queen plays and, oh, she wanted this song. She walks on and she starts doing a little jig. And the room, silence. Like, you could hear everyone. You could feel the tension in the air. And someone said, did we, we forgot to tell her not to, not to do that. And then she did it again. And you could just feel this. And the problem is, she does it. People love it.
0: Yes, I love it.
1: Yeah, but you don't know that until yes. it happens. It's too big a risk right? to In take. In the them. moment, you would never be like, you know what you should do? You should dance on your way out. You just <laughs> yeah. wouldn't do it because, because the thing is, it's not, not doing anything is so much better than going for something yeah. and it going wrong. And so there is a tendency against spontaneity because you politics... People don't like politicians. People want to see politicians with egg on their faces. And we have a media which I love. (laughs) Or (laughs) bacon. or milkshake and and so you have a a media which i love which wants to capture those moments to bring the campaign alive and so advisors spend a lot of time going you know what you should say exactly what i told you to say and and politicians that are great are very good at going thanks very much but i might do it my own way and trusting themselves enough to to measure that but if you're an advisor your job is to keep, keep bad things from happening and hopefully get a few
0: good things to happen as you say, you've been a special advisor at the MOJ, the DWP, CCHQ, the Cabinet Office, the Welsh Office. Of all of those um, positions, which one did you prefer? Ooh. What do you mean? So, I...
1: The MOJ is very busy. Yeah. There's a lot that goes on. There are some slightly surreal things that go on. I remember a discussion about a prisoner biting the head of a pigeon... And it just became a very... And we just end up being like, well, so what policy... Like, what what should the procedures be? Rather than engaging in the slightly weird things that happen. Um, So that was one where it's very full on. You you go to prisons um, and... As someone who... I mean, I grew up in like a council state in Hackney. I know people that have unfortunately gone through the system. You get a very different sense of, of what that looks like and what it means. And, and there are real policy challenges in a department like that. So if you like a bit of meaty action, then that's it. But if you like the cut and thrust of campaigns is nowhere better than CCHQ. Yes. And Cabinet Office was amazing because of the level of trust that the Prime Minister had put um, in my then boss, uh, David Lidington. So that was a unique kind of insight into some of the stuff at the very top of government. So uh, Much of a muchness. And
0: the Welsh Office?
1: Uh, I was only there for 10 days.
0: What? How
1: <laughs> and come? And most of that was spent in Wales where David Cameron came down on a farm and he ended up Sitting there, cuddling a little, cuddling a little. It yes, wasn't, I the, it oh, wasn't no. the pig one. It wasn't the infamous picture of him yeah.
0: cuddling a little pig. He had a little lamb. Yeah, he was milk. He was feeding it milk. Was he?
1: No, he just sort of it's cuddled it. Right. It was, it was 2016, and it was he came up to the Wales conference to talk about the EU and why we should stay in the EU. Now the Welsh Conservatives are very Eurosceptic, so yeah. it was an interesting speech. Uh, but we tramped around a farm for a little while as well to make the point about support for farmers. So how come you only at the Welsh office for ten days? Because of the Ian Duncan Smith and the whole scandal with pit payments that meant he resigned and then Stephen came in uh, so of course yeah it was a very short period of time so my first day at DWP was very fraught yeah. wow yeah.
0: I mean that and that is a big controversial department yeah it's an unpopular place isn't it
1: yeah it is and it, the worst thing about that was that we'd come in, there's obviously been a resignation. There was a whole negotiation that had to take place about, well, what actually are we going to do with this policy now? And we had to resolve it all by 2.30pm when Stephen had to give a statement in the House. And so it did involve a lot of very tense conversations with the Chancellor and the Prime Minister to make sure that everyone was exactly on the same page. And I then, on my my first day at DWP, spent maybe two hours on the phone to every single journalist in the lobby that you could imagine, who called every 10 seconds. I had to keep cutting off calls in the middle of it, explaining to them what our new policy was on welfare changes. It was, it was an interesting first day.
0: You had an amazing career already, and you're still so young. I mean, we grew up in this council state in Hackney. do you ever think, I'm going to be a special advisor in a conservative government? Oh, mean? God. No,
1: my parents wanted me to be a doctor. They're still upset about it, honestly. <laughs>
0: Are they Tories?
1: Oh no. No, my mother is a Labour voter. Has voted Labour most of her life. I mean, she's spent most of her life as a cleaner, so like, you know, part of the union, that kind of thing. My dad's a conservative. Um big fan of Thatcher. They, you know, I think immigrant family, they really believe in aspiration, hard work, education. I think those are very conservative values. And so I think they're they're very very supportive, but I wouldn't say they're that my mother in particular is particularly a conservative voter, but she's very supportive. I bet she'll listen to this.
0: (laughs) But did she ever say, oh, Anita, what are you doing hanging around with these nasty toys?
1: (laughs) No, I think... What would I say about what they think about me being in politics? They're very proud of me. They're very proud because parents are proud, aren't they? Um, I, I would say that... I wanted to do it because I loved it. I never really thought it would necessarily work out. And, you know, I'm not very far into my career, so hopefully, you know, I'll keep going. But it, I really hope more people from backgrounds like mine get involved in politics because it's an incredible privilege. And I will never, ever apologise for wanting to be able to make a difference and wanting to be having that level of power, essentially responsibility, to really do things and really move things. And when you come from a background like mine where you're in a very enclosed environment where you don't see people with different careers, you don't see lots of different paths you can go in, you don't see these incredible role models that make you believe that you can do whatever, you kind of feel like you have a responsibility, I guess, to to make that a reality for other people. And I think those are really conservative ideas. I so, would say that. So what
0: set you on the course into politics?
1: What set me on the course into politics? I really liked it at school um, and... I thought, uh, yeah, I, as I say, my parents really wanted me to do medicine. <laughs> they thought it's a really safe career. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter your background. If you've got the qualifications and you've got the ability, you'll get ahead. Yeah. Whereas politics is risky, right? You, you don't know anyone. We have no network. You yes. don't know the right people and all of that kind of stuff. And when I went, for, I went for Oxford University, it was like, oh, okay, well, give it a go. But we don't know this kind of environment. And so you just kind of keep going for it. And then eventually, well, no one seems to have told me no
0: yet. So <laughs> I'm surprised you're not standing in this election.
1: Yeah, I mean I do really I really do want to do it eventually. But yeah. I think I probably need a few more notches under my I don't know. I you're some people go advice, for it. Straight you're a away.
0: Yeah. You, you've got you've got more experience than most. Oh,
1: well, next time, next time. But I, I definitely do I do want to do it. And I know it's tough. I know it's very competitive. But if you think you've got something to bring to the table, which hopefully at some point I will, then then
0: I'll go for it. You worked on Question Time. Yes. um, Which is where we first met many years ago. (laughs) Um, How do you feel about uh, the way the show has changed?
1: I haven't watched watched it as much with with david Dimbleby no longer presenting obviously i worked very closely with david he's absolutely lovely he's so funny he's such a funny man and he's got such as an ease and a sense of humor and brings so much experience to it that every single time you're in the room with him you learn something um i think the program has changed in so many ways not just the political context but what we expect of a program like question time i mean it's the most watched program On political programme on TV, I'd imagine certainly still the case. And so what you get from a show like that is the argument. You get so much focus on what is the political argument of the week? What are the big questions that are being bandied about from one side to another? But what's changed is there used to be a landscape where question time was an argumentative program in the middle of lots of very straightforward factual programs that talked about policy and not just this person won the day. This person accused this person of doing this and here is their response, which makes most of the landscape now about about the argument and not so much about the substance and the policy and what does that actually mean for voters on a day-to-day basis. So I think some of that's changed. I also think post-referendum, things have really changed because we have always had <laughs> this issue. I remember, oh gosh, I remember in 2015, everyone was furious with us because we had the audience, a quarter Labour voters, a quarter Lib Dem, a quarter Conservative and a quarter Undecided. Yeah. You know, we thought, well, let's try and be fair to everyone. And Labour were like, well, hang on. Half the audience is the government, which was the, La- the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives, and the Conservatives went, hang on, half the, half the audience is left-wingers because it's Labour and it's the Liberal Democrat yeah. supporters. And so no-one was happy. And we've always had this problem with people that were su- Conservative voters or supporters, were just slightly less vocal. They weren't going to put their hand up to defend the Conservatives. They just would go to an election and vote Conservative. But I think post the referendum... There were some people that worried that their view was the niche view and the unpopular view. And after that referendum felt much more emboldened, whether that was conservative voters or people um, on the centre right or people that felt strongly about leave. There was they felt much more empowered to go on a programme like that and go, this is what I think. And I think you're ignoring my point of view. And that's really changed it. So audiences now are just much more... I mean, they're stealing the show a lot of the time. And it used to be the moment where the politician embarrassed himself that set, you know, Twitter alight. Now it's an audience member standing up and saying, what about me? And another audience member going, sit down, love. You know, that's what's happening with Question Time, which I think is exciting.
0: Yes. I mean, I I watch it less than I did. Mm um and the panel has changed it used to be far more politicians on the panel there are less politicians Mm -hmm. on it now that's not necessarily a bad thing Mm. it it just i find it very stressful to watch (laughs) i find it so stressful i mean as someone who worked on it but had clear conservative views um they did know that (laughs) how much of a challenge was it for you to to work on it sometimes
1: Oh, not at all. I, I really loved it. People think conservatives are much more tribal than they actually are because I think Labour voters are much more tribal than we actually are. We support the conservatives. We really want the conservatives to do well, but we're not about to throw someone out the room for not agreeing with us. And so for me, I brought a particular perspective on political issues of the day but what I wanted to deliver was a great and lively show and so when you have Russell Brand and Nigel Farage on the programme together and I remember before Russell came on that programme he had someone there that sort of combed his chest hair very lightly which I thought was very particular and I thought that's an aesthetic but (laughs) those programmes are really moments where you're like I'm so glad I was here I'm not Sure I was glad to see that particular moment but you just think I'm always going to remember that. And there are often like bust-ups after the shows uh, between panellists and, and that Mr. Kind of Mr Campbell and John McDonnell. I will not comment. Allegedly, uh, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> and that always makes for really interesting programmes and that's when you know that the argument really matters to people on the panel. So for me... You're a conservative, but you want to deliver and tell audiences what's happening in politics, and there's no better way to do that, in some ways, than, than question topic.
0: There's so much scrutiny of political programmes now. We're seeing the discussion about whether Boris Johnson's going to go on Andrew Neil, um, whether going on Andrew Marr is enough. I mean, do you take a view on that? Do you think well, if Jeremy Corbyn's done it, then Boris Johnson should do it, and there's a sense of fairness?
1: Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to go three minutes with Andrew Neil, let alone 30, so yeah. I have sympathy, and I know that Scrutiny really matters to voters. I think it matters probably in a slightly different way to 2017, because there was a feeling that Theresa May called an election in order to get this huge majority and then thought, "Mm, should I fight this election or should I hang around? Whereas this time, voters do know why there's an election. They feel as though Brexit was taking up a lot of time without there being much progress so there's less of that kind of well why have you called it then if you're not going to do every single debate and do all that scrutiny on balance do i think i think he'll probably end up doing it because it's just it's always a risk to do it but you do also want to make voters feel as though you want to work really hard for their vote that there are no thing questions that you have to answer and so far since that's happened, he did that LBC debate and he did a press conference and these are kind of indications that, he, that the team are very alert to being accused of, of not being around and, and visible
0: uh, both candidates did the Andrew Neil interviews in the Tory leadership contest yes.
1: and I prepped Jerry for quite I helped prep him for quite a lot of the, all of the debates and the interviews so that was quite interesting uh,
0: was the Andrew Neil one the most stressful to prepare for
1: no. No, because Jeremy's so good on detail. Yes. There are certain people he's calm. He, he doesn't get rattled with those kinds yeah. of things. It, the debate format is very different. Most people, most politicians, no matter how senior, haven't really done a stand-up debate. And so that feels like an, a real moment. Whereas with Andrew Neil. So long as you're across a detail and Jeremy was someone who didn't you didn't go, well, today we're announcing this. And he'd go, oh, great. He would have been part of the formulation of that policy and, and be tweaking it. So it was pretty good in the sense that you didn't have to spend four days because what I would say to anyone, you know, as a former advisor going on Andrew Neil is just, oh, most most journalists, you'd say to them oh, you're going to be interviewed by you know, this top political journalist. Well, just make sure they have a tendency to interrupt, so make sure you do this, or, oh, you know, this. With Andrew Neil, it's just know your brief better than anybody else in the world, and good luck to you. Yes. Because he is that good. Whereas yeah. Jeremy's quite good with detail, and therefore I think that one, yeah, I felt quite relaxed about that one.
0: It was a phenomenal piece of telly, and it really felt like there was a genuine contrast, not just in terms of the characters of the two individuals, but in the tone in which they handled that. Mm. And it felt like Jeremy Hunt felt a calmer figure, felt uh, more serious, and it felt like Boris Johnson was all over the place. You know that thing about Section 5B or whatever it was, and then Section 5C. Oh yeah. my, Gat, 24. That was it, <laughs> Gat 24, brilliant bit of telly. No, I don't. <laughs> to be fair, it was the best answer. I mean, is that the best thing, if you don't know the answer, to just say, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me?
1: To give that advice if you really don't know then you just don't mm. know but you can normally say what I do know is and then say what you
0: do know exactly <laughs> what I do know is um, the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro <laughs> I know lots of things Andrew um, working on these political broadcast shows it feels like there's a lot of pressure from politicians particularly in an election campaign a lot of pressure on social media I mean does that pressure transfer to the staff when you're, when you're working on question time or, or not?
1: It depends how you handle stress, honestly. I think there are some people that do really take it to heart. But one of the great things about picking a good team and having a team that you really like with you, it's not just about, are you competent? Can you get the job done? Can I trust you? Because things always go wrong. I remember, I think it was, yeah, it was the, the Hunt campaign. We had Laura Kinsberg, the political editor of the BBC, with us. And we were in a school and they were doing these lovely questions to Jeremy. And it was all on broadcast. And who's your political hero? And what would you do about climate change? And it was, it was a great moment. And then I stepped out of the room for... 20 seconds to talk to the producer the cameras had gone out just to say oh what we're doing next and the I don't know if it was a school kids or whether it was one of the snappers who had him sort of down with all the little kids in this photo which I think Guido put up as sort of the kind of where, where's Wally type thing of, oh. him sort of amongst all these kids and you do think I left the room for approximately 23 seconds and So it's if you have a team that just rolls with it and says, that's the way it goes, let's move on. It wasn't the greatest disaster. No one needs to spend a lot of time with retribution and you move on. That's the best way to handle stress. If you're someone that really needs to get to the bottom of it and the numerous leak inquiries and that kind of things that happen when when things go wrong, it can sap the energy uh, from the room. And there's so many more political errors that happen because someone CC'd in the wrong Sam than because someone is intentionally trying to bring down the government from inside. And knowing that, the number of leaks I've been involved in have literally been just that. Oh, no, you meant to copy in this, Michael. You copied in that journalist, Michael. It's it's extraordinary, really. And so when that stuff happens, it just happens. Yeah. It, it is what it is. And someone will inevitably have a folder with something in it and get snapped. And as much as you get annoyed, it is what it is. And you need to be able to go, right, OK, what are we going to do about it?
0: And it's usually cock up rather than conspiracy. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I wished I wish more people were sitting there and plotting because then you'd feel like you were getting the pain or the heat because of something that was a deliberate you know act of war yes. whereas instead it's literally just oh no, I made a mistake, these things happen. And everyone outside is like, oh, clear, government government's sending a signal. You know, the bat signal's in the air, you know, something's afoot. And the number of times I wish I could tell people, no, he said that because he was just a bit tired and, and not actually because he was making a pitch for the leadership.
0: Well, people always presume there's something else going on, particularly with certain individuals. Dominic Cummings is someone that people... Seemed to uh, kind of Rasputin him figure, and every generation, you know, Alistair Campbell had a mythology around him. Have you ever dealt with Dominic Cummings?
1: No, I haven't. I don't know what's it's just probably just the weird timings of these things, but I never have. And although I know some people in his team, and they all seem pretty. Given hard and and stand-up individuals, I kind of think, again, people love to mythologise, mm. journalists in particular, and make it seem as though there are a few people pulling all the strings. And if you ever worked closely with Number 10, you know it's quite difficult to be that person in the centre just pulling strings because there are so many strings in existence. And so, yeah, often I wish people had the kind of power to do the sorts of things that journalists attribute to them.
0: But in terms of your own ambition, then, do you think... Uh, I'd like to be a Dominic Cummings figure, or a Boris Johnson figure, or do do you have a kind of idol that you would like to emulate?
1: I'm, I'm a huge fan of Ruth Davidson. I'm very sad that that she's no longer kind of at the forefront of politics. Though I don't think I hope that's not forever. So there are people in politics that I think have done incredible things and I hope will continue to do so. And I would love to be able to contribute in that way. But that's really up to me to be able to really deliver something. You don't just wake up and go, you know, what would be great if I ran the country. It's more like, you know, what would be great if I had the talent and the ability and the insights to be able to deliver something that would... Really make a difference. It's quite serious, isn't
0: it? It is, but politics is, <laughs> politics is serious. Um, for this campaign, then, I know, it, I know it's difficult and uh, polling's all over the place. What, what does your instinct tell you about their likely outcome?
1: Does this have to be a short answer? No, 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 not at
0: all. No, it can be as detailed or as brief as you like. So
1: the challenge I have and the, the challenge the Conservative Party has is differential turnout, which is that it's December the 12th. Nobody cares about this election. <laughs> um, I mean, politicians do, journalists do. Ordinary yeah. people are doing, getting on with their lives, and so you might get to a situation where it's the twelfth of December, it's raining, it's snowing, it's dark. You you kind of want Boris Johnson to win you definitely don't want Jeremy Corbyn to win, but are you really going to go out and vote? Mm. And so the number of activists you have on the ground in the day can make a huge difference yes. to a turnout election. And therefore there is, I think there are, well, there are more Labour activists on the ground. Millions
0: of them, by the sounds of it.
1: <laughs> and they all have views that we agree <laughs> with. Um, and... Therefore, on the day, you could see quite a, a good turnout operation from the Labour Party make mm. things quite difficult. I still hope for a slim Conservative majority. I, think it, I, I hope for a Conservative majority, I think it will be a slim one. Um, I'm, I'm talking slim like 10 rather than higher, just because of the turnout challenge that yes. you end up getting. I do think that those seats in the Midlands and the North have a good chance of turning blue.
0: The Labour Wall.
1: The the Red Wall, as we're calling it now, like we're in Game of Thrones. And also the South West, I think you could see the Conservatives do quite well and hang on to quite a lot of those seats, even though I think a few are in trouble The challenge on the day will be, whatever the polling says, how many people actually turn out to vote. And that's where things might get tricky. And that's why I think the Conservatives are not being complacent and are really going hell for leather to win this election.
0: Well, we'll see what happens. The polling seems to suggest at the moment that the Tories will get a majority of some sort.
1: Yeah, but it's a snapshot. It's now. Things can go horribly wrong in the next week and week in a bit. <laughs> well, you know, let's hope. These are elections. I don't Well, <laughs> um, Things can go horribly wrong in any direction. But I think that I can't see major game changers coming up. Voters know what they think about Jeremy Corbyn. Voters know what the Conservative Party is offering as much as people say, oh, your manifesto said nothing. Well, it said, get Brexit done, more police officers and more money for the NHS. What else do you... You know, voters don't read manifestos. And if you ask people what Other conservatives promising; those are three pretty clear pledges. What are the Labour Party promising? What are their top pledges? Four-day week,
0: nationalised water, nationalisation, free broadband for all, free broadband for all. (laughs) But they are the the ideas are out there, aren't they? People know. Yeah,
1: but I wouldn't say that there was sort of a top through strand of of the Labour Party manifesto that could keep things really simple beyond nationalisation, and that does make a difference in terms of if you're trying to counteract the relative strength of Boris Johnson to Jeremy Corbyn with policy, they need to be quite clear cut and feel very deliverable. Unfortunately, that's not the situation the Labour Party are in right now.
0: Well, let's see what happens. Anita, thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you for having me, It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, there you go, Anita Botang. Um, a fantastic conversation uh, about so many different aspects of politics in the campaign and broadcasting, and I'm sure she'll be a Member of Parliament um, and, and even more um, before too long. Keep your funny campaign stories coming into to politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Sign up to the mailing list at mattford.com slash mailing hyphen list and get tickets to future political parties and my new Brexit Pursued by a Bear fully updated tour which starts at the Salford Lowry on Tuesday the 14th of January at mattford.com slash live. I'll see you tomorrow.